there's this idea inside me somewhere that I hold to be true, but that needs a lot of investigation, and I've been tracking it down. The idea is that I was once whole and happy and healthy. And then through the things that I've been through, whether they're the traumas or the hardships or the mistakes I've made, you know, the things that irreparably change you. And there are things that irreparably change you. This isn't some woo-woo where I'm going to turn it around and say that everything is what it once was, because that's just not the way life is. If you look towards somebody who, say, is grieving the loss of their child, to turn around and say, oh, well, you can just go back to the way they were, is, is nonsense. So we do have to confront these things that change us. But the idea I've been tracking down is that at some point I was more whole or more complete, and that these things have taken away from me or degraded me in such a way that has deemed me less than I was. And so now I'm in need of healing or fixing or tweaking or something to return to home, to return to that thing that I once was. So when you're confronting change, when you're confronting these things that have changed your life, in reality, it's interesting that we play this game with our mind, right? Because you would never do this sort of thing in the physical world. You would never sit around and spend time on how you can get back to last Thursday at the deli so you can do something different. You might entertain the thought of it, but you would never actually strive to get to last Thursday. But when it comes to our spiritual or emotional selves, we play this game all the time, right? That, oh, I need to get back to that thing. As if that thing is what is supposed to be. But the bad news, and the news that you know on some level, is that what's supposed to be is bullshit. And there really only is what is. But living in that reality of what actually is, is really, I think, the game of our life. That's really the challenge of you living the best you can is to return to now. And now can suck. Now can be painful. Change is painful. There's real hardship out there. This isn't a game of turning bad things into good things, but instead learning how to live here. So let's go back to the analogy that I've used, that you were once whole and are no longer whole, broken, flawed, doomed, whatever, <laughs> irreparably changed. I chose that analogy because it's so attractive and sexy. So let's take you as a whole being. What if we remove three of your limbs? It's a serious question. What if we were to remove three of your limbs? Would you be incomplete? Without your arm? Without your legs? Well, today's guest did lose an arm and two legs. His name's BJ Miller, who's an expert at living in reality because his life-changing events can't be hidden. They can't be changed. He can't think himself out of this problem and into some new completeness or back to some nostalgic previous self. His life has changed forever, and he is living in that changed reality. And this is the same thing that you and I are doing, except with us, we play this silly game that we can think something different or that there is some path to different, but things are changed now. Your life, what you've been through, has changed you. You are now living a changed life, whether you realize it or not, and the challenge I'm presenting with you and that hopefully this conversation stirs up inside of you, is how can you live in that beautiful, yet sometimes painful, and sometimes uncomfortable, reality 
of you. And that the journey of becoming whole is really just becoming what you are now. Here is my conversation with BJ Miller. Hi. Hello. Thanks for coming, BJ. Thanks for having, pal. It's very nice to be here. You're the second guest to ever be recorded in the studio. No shit. So we're working out the kinks. Shosh was the first? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. I'm a nobody, so, you know, <laughs> people. Oh, there's freedom in that. But, yeah. yeah. People always say, you know, if you want an hour, I'll be at this hotel at this time. <laughs> if you want to show up, you can. <laughs> Me and my gear show up. So it's an honor to have you here. Thank you, Sam. It's an honor to be here with you, pal. I start the same way every single time. And this can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like. But BJ, who are you? <laughs> you the, the easiest and hardest question, the simplest and hardest question in the world. Um, I would say I'm a work in progress. I don't want to evade your question by getting heady, but I do feel very much like I'm becoming. Like, an un, I feel like a, an unfurling. And... I used to wish for a much more concrete answer to your question. Like I am, I am smart or I am, uh, pick an adjective. I am funny. I am whatever. I am stalwart. I do this for work. I don't do that. I mean, that sounds very seductive in a way to, to, to know, to be known and to know oneself. But I have found that to be much more limiting than, than helpful and just sort of inaccurate Every time I keep try to peg myself for who I am or what I care about or what I believe or what I don't believe or who's in or who's out, it pretty quickly, in some exception, blows that away. So I guess my answer to your question really is, man, I am a work in progress. I try to not have too many goals in life and rather sort of see where things go. That's so funny because it seems like you've done so much. Hmm. Is that newer? Where is that a newer focus of yours, or has that been something that's been on your mind for a while? It feels like it's been on my mind for a while. It's more like I've more yielded to that. I mean, as a kid, moving through school, and 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 you know, we moved around a lot, and um, you know, environment I was in was always changing, and people you know around me were changing, and I longed for uh, this sort of sense of stability of that sort of concrete thing. It just kept proving elusive. So it's sort of an old reflection. The new part is I don't really fight it much anymore. And I do think, to whatever degree I've really uh, uh, done anything or achieved anything, I, th- I think it, for, I don't do well with, I don't love pressure. And my self-imposed pressure, of course, is the worst, like many people, I'm sure. There's also an adaptive part of my answer to your question when like, if I, have a set a goal and focus and ram myself towards that goal. I don't fare so well. Um, whereas if I say, Hey, those things would be great to, I'd like to head in that direction. Let's see what happens. And we'll sort of hold some points in tension and see where I go. And I'd love this to happen. Maybe it could happen. Let's see if it could happen, but being open to it, not happening. That's when I do well or, you know, for myself, that's when I feel comfortable and that's when I actually get things done. So there's a little bit of a, a wire threading for me in this. Have a sense of where I'd like to be, but not hold on to it too tightly. I love that. That's a space I've been occupying mm-hmm. lately, but it's not because I necessarily feel like I do. I've had an interesting relationship to work where I am a pressure chamber. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and I can get wound so tight and be so fixated on something and that to the point to where if you're 15 minutes late, I feel like never speaking to you again. Oh, oh Sam. Oh, I was a little late. <laughs> no, no, no. This is like, this is where I kind of came from, you know, and I got out of bed with fear, guilt, and shame. I got out of bed and said, somebody's working harder than you. You need to do this. You're lazy. You're this. And talking to so many of the my heroes, one of the common themes is how kind they are. Mm. All to themselves. Of, to themselves. All of the people I really look up to had that in common. Mm. And I'm clean and sober. I don't drink, I don't smoke. And I think that the stress that I was under was probably gonna be more fatal than both of those things. Mm. I mean, you're a doctor. I really think that the more we can quantify it, the more we're gonna realize how big of a factor stress and internal wellness play on mortality. Mm. I believe you, I agree. You have an interesting story because it starts, it has this gigantic dramatic moment. Mm -hmm. And I feel like lots of us have moments that we just don't anchor to quite as much. You know, for me, it's like, you know, there's a, a couple of really big moments when I was a meth head. Mm -hmm. There was the first time my heart really got broken, you know, when the partner who I thought I was going to be with for the rest of my life and who was a stepmother to my kid left. Mm -hmm. But you have a unique moment. I've listened to a lot of and read a lot of your work mm. and it always starts at that moment. And I was curious if we could go before that mm. and talk about what kind of kid you were mm. and what kind of young man you were before mm. your life changed. Yeah, that's, I'd be happy to. It's, and I appreciate that. Um, sometimes with some folks, it's as though my life began with that traumatic moment and that there was, you know, Nothing of consequence before then. So I really appreciate your, uh, your question, Sam. And it also will help further f answer your first question, which is, I mean, as a kid, I was, and I still think of myself as insecure. And maybe that's part of my answer to I'm a work in progress because I don't like where I'm, I'm not, I don't feel fully baked now, or I hope I'm not fully baked now because I don't love it. You know, <laughs> I hope there's more more to go or something. There's There's a piece in there too. It's not just some sort of heady equanimous place, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so as a kid, so I was a younger of two kids, my parents, Bruce and Susan, standard upper middle class, not born into great privilege themselves, but working class and they had, they weren't lacking things and Midwesterners, they were both born in Cincinnati. They met at Procter and Gamble when they were 22, working on some Crest toothpaste report. My dad was in business school and my mom was, had just finished college. And back in the day, you know, they were, they met three weeks later, they were engaged. And, you know, that's that kind of story where mom was 22 and out of college and terrified she wasn't married yet and had, you know, so she, she was happy that someone came along as handsome as his dad is and away they went pretty, pretty quickly. In retrospect, these stories just always shocked me. This seems so like, like folly. But um, anyway, they got married. They had my sister, Lisa. Um, she was almost four years older than me. And then out came me, and at the time we were in Chicago, and, and then we moved to St. Louis, and then we moved to El Paso, Texas, then Roswell, New Mexico, then back to St. Louis, then back to suburban Chicago, all by the time I was nine. And I mention all that not just to rattle off like 
data points. But all that moving, I think, was a really big part of my childhood and a big part of my own formation. And I, I was young enough to really delight in it, all these changing landscapes and different people, because otherwise I was pretty white bread. You know, we were suburban, white, nuclear family down to the country club thing. And, you know, not crazy one per, like not the crazy wealth that we see today, but we weren't hurting. Um, and most everyone I saw around me looked a lot like me. Um, which is why the move to El Paso and Roswell, I think were very helpful. A huge change in the landscape, which really moved me deeply, deeply, deeply as a big part of my life. But also seeing just different shapes and size people was a big part of it. So, but that was also a great deal of contention around all those moves in my family. My parents, as happens, I think, you know, they're approaching their 40s and they're, they've been married 10 plus years, have kids, and they're just starting to get to know each other in a way. You know, they're just starting to let themselves feel like they ever would have had a choice to do differently and explore different avenues. They just kind of marched down the corridors that they thought they should. So they started fighting. The moves were brutal. My mom had polio. She had uh, as an infant, and she's been disabled her whole life. And so these moves were extra hard on her physically. And anyway, lots of fighting, lots of therapies, lots of ther family therapy through the 80s. Happily, I mean, fortunately, thank God my parents got help. And then my sister was a little tornado. I mean, Lisa was just a, f she was just a little furnace. She burned really hot all the time except when she was not hot, she was super cold. You know, she was, uh, we would posthumously come to realize bipolar mm -hmm. um, in a very classic way, kind of shocking with all her therapy. And I was in med school at the time that she killed herself. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, when she was 32, two weeks away from her 33rd birthday, and I was 29. So this childhood of mine, I guess what I'm getting at was, on the, on the surface, as these, this is not an exotic story, as on the surface, sort of white privileged thingy with access and loving family, at least had family that was still together on paper. But of course, underneath that surface, it was way more complicated than that. We could go on, our, you know, obviously I could talk for a long time from about, but I guess the important takeaways were the moves, the instability, both in a positive and a negative sense in a way, a family that fought a lot, for me, a role as peacekeeper, where Lisa and my parents were uh, fighting a lot. And I tried to be the, you know, I tried to not stir the pot much. I was, I was the good kid, quote unquote, which of course didn't help my relationship with my sister, which was it. We were in and out together. She, um, you know, tried, tried to hate me, <laughs> tried to hate me because I was the, you know, the golden child comparatively. Mm -hmm. Totally of her making, you know, she, we would both do silly things, but I would, you know, like she would get drunk, come home, throw up on my parents. I'd get drunk outside, throw up in the bushes, clean myself up, come back inside, <laughs> you know, like little differences like that. Um, she was making a point. I was making a point to not rock the boat. I love my family and I want, and she did too, but I was just, just trying to keep the peace, I guess is the point. Sorry, Sam, I'm going on and on here. This isn't broadcast, so it doesn't have to fit into yeah. any okay. time slot. And I, we edit, I could show you what an edited file looks like. We yeah. do hundreds of edits okay. an episode. Every okay. um will be scrubbed from this. And so okay. it just, you know, I thought it was weird hmm. that it all starts with the loss. And I didn't know, I wanted to ask, 
what did you lose? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. it's funny how we hero worship in a way mm-hmm. that heroes have this extraordinary thing, but it meant in erasing your childhood mm-hmm. in the storytelling. Not to say that the interviewers didn't conduct wonderful interviews, but I just wanted to know, like, who mm-hmm. who were you before mm-hmm. the event? Mm-hmm. So such a generous and good question. Let me kind of, I don't know if you were about to say something else. No. Um, just dump back in. I, I'm getting lost in little details. I mean, what I want to convey in answer to your question, what was lost? Obviously, limbs were lost. But I didn't have a rock-solid identity that was set. I wasn't predestined to be anything. I certainly didn't feel that way. I didn't know where I was heading. So it's not like I had this thing lit up in front of me, then all of a sudden I couldn't go that route. Or I was destined to be a mason, and now I had only one hand I couldn't. In some ways, for me, the internal experience was just was very consistent. I never felt really good in my body. I was very much a late bloomer, which drove me nuts. I was a very skinny kid. Early on, before puberty, I was a decent athlete with my peers, and then everyone shot past me, and I became like middle school, seventh, eighth grade. I was a miserable kid. Same. Miserable. I mean, I would never, I used to hate, I'd hear my parents' friends say, oh, well, enjoy it. This is the best time in your life. If that, I would take, I took pretty much everything literally as a sort of Episcopalian middle, uh, Midwesterner. We just sort of, and I, that terrified me. And in some ways it was hard. I was miserable by proxy. My sister's misery was so apparent. My parents' confusion was so apparent. I could. I was very sensitive as a child. I think from having dis, having all that pain around me and having a disabled mom, watching how the world treated her as a. And I've I've gotten this treatment too. Either a Frankenstein kind of scary, ugly, repugnant, sick thing, or like a Jesus figure, like someone who must have special insights because they're all screwed up, you know, because their body's all mangled or whatever. Disabled people get this treatment all the time. Anyway, so I was informed by all those things. I was very much informed by the disability movement and my understanding of disability informed. I felt disabled. I, I, from a start, I was always questioning what was normal. I was always kind of turned off by normal and yet wanted to be normal. So anyway, I was a conflicted, sensitive kid. I saw only cruelty in the world. I felt not only cruelty. I just felt it really acutely. Like I'm sure many kids do. And I tried so hard to kind of say, oh, this is the way the world is and try to get in line, but it just never, never worked. And I think it was important that I was a late bloomer too. My body, I was, you know, I was puerile. I was lanky, skinny, and behind. Same. You know? I was such a sensitive guy and I remember feeling so frail (laughs) and so vulnerable. Like my son is a bruiser. Mm -hmm. He's a confident bruiser i almost don't know what to do with him because i was prepared to teach him how to survive (laughs) you know instead of like you know don't don't push people around with that body and he's so sensitive too that he wouldn't but Mm -hmm. i just wasn't prepared for it i I felt like i wasn't prepared for life Uh, shoshona and i were talking about like everybody else got the handbook Mm -hmm. except for me did you feel ever sam that that was did you blame, did you have a sense that the world was screwed up and you were kind of right to see it? And like, therefore your outcastness felt 
Like, was there some, perhaps, a sense of truth or pride in it? Or did you feel like the world had it right and you were just wrong? I'd say it's a combination of both. Yeah, me too. I felt like, how come nobody's worried? Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I, I feared death really early. And I was this kind of strange, esoteric little nine-year-old frantically wanting to know what happened when we died. Mm-hmm. I could get into this place where I imagine not being conscious and it's like this tunnel you're going down and once you get to the end of the tunnel and you and it clicks Mm -hmm. I'm not none of this Mm -hmm. none of this anymore it hits you in the stomach and I felt that often I just want to say why is no one terrified Mm -hmm. and religion you know came in and and practically the only reason why I was first attracted to religion is because the promise of some afterlife Mm -hmm. you you know Mm And I guess in a way I'm grateful because it helped me get back onto tracks, but I just, I didn't get it. And sometimes I still feel that way. So, you know, sometimes I feel like, God, why am I this way? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I look at people who just like enjoy life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they make it look so simple, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I just, I just say, God, I just want to, I would love to just work a job and enjoy it and do this and that's just not the way i'm function i'm i'm like you i'm, I'm also like your sister you know I've, I've had several pretty serious suicidal bouts i'm just this strange kind of sensitive like my nerves are kind of they don't have the sheath it's just all exposed it feels like at times and has that changed for you or your relationship to that has changed i would say it's more that my relationship to that has changed yeah yeah and so there is this event in your life, and I hate to make you retell it because it's it's where all the story starts in most yeah. things. But for people who don't know you, yeah, can you bring us up to speed? No, happy to. And maybe you'll see why the accident was a big deal, and also in some ways why it wasn't. So sophomore year of college. So I so after all that childhood, I I I chose to go. I chose to go to boarding school which was very weird. And my, my friends in public school in the Midwest, no one knew what boarding school was. We all knew what reform school was. But for, it was like a weird hunch. I knew I needed to get out of, I was at a school of 5,000 kids. I was a mama's boy, more timid than I should be, more afraid than I should be, but I had I knew it. And I felt like if I got out early, I'd have a chance to kickstart some other part of myself. It was weird, Sam. I, I, I'm so glad I did that. And I... In retrospect, it seems kind of extraordinary. But anyway, at the time, it was like, I asked my parents to help me look into it. They didn't want me to go, but I, and then I went. Anyway, for three years in high school, I went to boarding school on the East Coast. I was miserable there. <laughs> did not, un- to- to- totally did not understand sarcasm. I mean, I was, so, the Northeast sort of biting, blue bloody thing was, I just didn't get it. So for two of my three years there, I just was confused and got very reclusive and just turned more actually to music. To I was in the choir, and I took that very seriously. Took the choir very seriously, and I'd always taken music seriously. And I tried, and I t- took uh, Jesus seriously. I was thinking I was going to be a man of the cloth at times. I was so moved by choir music, choral music. I was so I found such comfort in the messages of love and forgiveness, and the I just longed for the world to 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 rule to operate by the golden rule um Same. so god i just so 
there I was anyway. So, but by with that, I bring that up because it, it, it did in a way it worked. By the end of boarding school, I finally was hitting puberty. I finally grew. I filled out. I finally, you know, I could walk down the road without falling over. And and beyond that, I was getting actually pretty. I was like, wow, this this body was getting. I don't know. I was starting to feel physically like um, a different person. I was independent now. I could live away from home, and it helped me a lot. And so when I got to college. <laughs> Like minute one, I exploded sort of socially in all sorts of ways. And I was creating this new confident person with just enough truth in it that I could build on it and I could feel it coming. I got a sort of a clean slate with all these new skills and I was doing, all, I was doing good. I was doing right. I was doing well. And that freshman year of college was, I was road crew, I made great friends and we were just on cloud nine. So then anyway, that's, that's the lead in. So I'd had this sort of one year feeling in my body, feeling right in the world, feeling some, some, some magic thing called confidence. And then sophomore fall. So my buddies and I were out one night just after Thanksgiving break. So November 27th. Uh, and we were out just having a good time. We just got back from Thanksgiving. It was a Monday night. We didn't go crazy out on the town, but we were out having fun and we were walking to go to get a sandwich at the late night market. Anyway, there's a commuter train in Princeton, that runs from Princeton to Princeton Junction for the commuter folks to New York and Philly. And anyway, there's a train just sitting there, non-operating, uh, off hours. And we, you know, said, oh, let's climb, you know, like you'd climb a jungle gym. Like not, it, we didn't break into something. It was just sitting there. We did, it wasn't moving. There's a ladder. Anyway, just scurried up the back. And, uh, um, you know, I'll mention an interesting story that I haven't ever, I don't think I've ever talked about in this context. Freshman year, deep in the crew season, so spring of freshman year, we were getting very good as, as a crew. We were getting fast. And then I hurt my back in this really dumb way right before the biggest race of the season. And it, I hurt it, but I injured it, but it was, it healed pretty quickly. It wasn't a real injury. I basically, when I now I understand from medicine, I acutely herniated a disc. I could bulge the disc, hit a nerve, my back, you know, my pain was shooting down the legs. But the truth is nothing structural changed. I was fine the next day, but I was terrified. Now I was like, is this going to happen when I'm in the big race? If I get back in the boat, if I tell the coach that I'm really okay and get back in the boat, what if happens in the middle of the race? And, I just, and then I, all my confidence started falling away. Oh boy, Sam, you get me talking. So anyway, bottom line is then, so then I'm in this recovery. They have me hold up in the infirmary. The coach won't let me leave. He wants me on bed rest. He wants me to get well as quickly as possible. And, and anyway, I kept telling him like, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready. And so the race came, I wasn't in the boat because I was terrified to get back in the boat, even though I was feeling fine. And I was deeply, deeply ashamed of that. It felt so cowardly to me. And I don't, I've never talked to this with my friends. I've tried actually. They, I don't think they know what I'm talking about. Um, but for me, it was a huge deal. That year of confidence came kind of crashing down. I was back in this very familiar, insecure physical place. And so anyway, soft, I mentioned that because when I, that night on the train, I, I was the first up on the train and that fall, I was, I was sort of leading the charge with sort of a little bit more reckless behavior, a little fearless. So I was trying to be fearless because I had just been a coward in my mind. So I was trying to be fearless. And I honestly relate that to me getting up on top of that train first. And I was trying to overcome this cowardly thing that happened the spring before. So when I stand up, my, 
So in good old instant karma, I stand up. I had a metal watch on that my dad had given me and uh, electricity arc to the watch. And that was it. Yeah, entered the arm and blew out the feet. Yeah, because that's where it had to find ground. Yeah. And you weren't awake for any of that, I take it. I was awake, but I don't remember it. Well, yeah. so there was a big explosion. Then I landed up on top of the train some distance away. I landed on my head. My head was bleeding. My buddy Pete came up on top of the train, found me there. My body was smoking, but motionless. And he kind of shook me and I came to and went immediately freaking out, screaming wildly. But I was, so I don't remember any of that, but I was, that's what I've been told. And so you're taken to a hospital. How soon are your limbs amputated? Um, the first surgery is about five or six days later. Yeah. Yeah. They, they realized the tissue was dead or? Yeah, it's not clear. You got to give it a little time to see what tissue's viable, what's not. And also you're, you're hemodynamically so unstable from the electrical burn, the electrical charge, the current. You're just not stable enough for surgery if you can help it. So they're letting your body kind of, they're pouring fluids in your body, letting the skin declare itself before the surgeries. And you were walked through this process. The doctors were telling you what they're up to, and yeah, to some degree, I remember it very as you remember a dream, very hazy. But yeah, the doctors were amazing, and my parents moved into the hospital. They lived there, and it was all day by day, minute by minute, pretty touch and go for the first month or so. What was it like to be? You were twenty. How old were you? I was nineteen. You were nineteen. What was it like to be a nineteen-year-old? afraid that you could lose your limbs like before they were taken mm -hmm. was there a fear or were you still in shock and processing or what was the no you know it's so funny and i don't know how much of this is vagaries of memory uh the vagaries of opiates you know, <laughs> but when i look back on that and and i've looked back on it from from day two you know i've been thinking about it a lot but my memory of it now and then was that it felt just it felt like Right. That year of feeling so good and well and confident and uh, sort of my innards and outers and my innards and uh, my innards and my outer selves were sort of lined up and the world was sort of lined up and the world was responding to me like I would, would, would have wanted him to. I mean, that, that sort of sense of alignment that felt like that was the, that, that felt weird. So that peace and power of freshman year, I knew that to be an, that was the anomaly. Yeah. So in a way, the other shoe dropped. Yeah. And in some basic level, I wasn't shocked. That and combined with, I was, you know, having grown up around disability my whole life, I, was, I, I knew these things happen. It was not a lot of why me. Hmm. Like it was pretty quickly like, why, why not me? And actually in some ways, that's a much healthier question. And it was, and it served me very well, even if it was driven from insecurity. Yeah. You even used the word karma before. I almost stopped you because what is, what a strange narrative <laughs> to know. attach to it. You know, I never, I, that was, that's funny you say that. Cause I read, I said that I realized I never say that. I'm not even sure I mean it, but anyway, I don't believe in karma in that way. Yeah. I don't think I do either. So it did, but it did feel like, I'm sorry, Sam, I just going to say that, but it did feel like a big, and I call it the cosmic spanking. Like yeah. I was getting out of line somewhere and some karma, I don't know, whatever, but it did feel like a, just like a, like, again, I had fallen out, like that feeling of alignment was me going astray and I needed to get back to feeling out of sorts with the world and being, and looking fucked up. Like I needed, like that felt, nor that felt right. Yeah, you mentioned in one of your talks or one of your interviews that we are creatures of of meaning and narrative, and we're one of the few that get to assign meaning to objects and mm -hmm. meaning to hands and feet. You know, I don't know if the pigeon 
is, yeah. a, is aware it lost its toes right or in the same way that we are right but there must have been your first sober moments of realizing in one in one sense you you said that you were no longer whole mm-hmm. right you were no longer a whole human which is interesting it's an interesting word because i think it's it's how so much of my audience we talk about mm-hmm. the heavy stuff here mm-hmm. and so many people have reached out to me and say that's exactly how i feel uh-huh. and i was wondering when you do come into the the sober moments of, of realizing you're not whole what was your journey like from there because i imagine mm. You've had a long time between then and now. Yeah, about it's thirty years. About oh, thirty years. Twenty-nine years. Yeah. And so I don't imagine you were uh, you downloaded this. <laughs> amazing, you know? No. Yeah. I mean, it took a while. I mean, one of the great gifts of the injuries were, whereas so much of my angst before the injuries were, I didn't have physical proof. I mean, sure, I was a late bloomer and kind of awkward at times, blah blah blah. But for the moment, I, mean, I looked. You know, I even did like kid modeling as a kid. You know, made some extra money in junior high. You know, so I mean, I I looked by a lot of measures good, even or whatever. I don't know. I, I, this is where I can't I can't overstate the power of my mom's example and having disability the the activism, the disability rights movement. Not a lot of people are sort of aware of this civil rights movement that is a really powerful and profound one. Um, that the basic idea that as a disabled person, you have you have rights. You know, before the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990, 91. A previous guest helped co-write that. Richard, oh, yeah? Richard Pimentel. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Right. So, you know, before that legislation, you really didn't have, I mean, there were some, there was legislation leading up to it. But the basic gist was you didn't, as a disabled person, you couldn't expect to have acts, public access to transportation or ramp curb cuts in the sidewalks. You know, if, if someone was charitable and wanted to make a wheelchair accessible part of their store or their building, great. But you were relying on people's charity, which just enforced this subpar status. And so the disability rights movement said, screw that. I mean, what, you've got all four limbs you can ambulate and somehow the world's for you and it's not for me with, you know, whatever. Like this idea that what is normal and why would we warehouse people because of some physical ailment? And I like to take it even further. Like like when school kids, this is my favorite question, Sam. When I like talking to school kids sometimes. And I look for re- reasons for them to like they'll ask me, do you miss having two hands? Very often I love this. And I'll say... Yeah, I miss having two hands, but you know, don't you miss having three? You know, and they're always like, always kind of look at me funny. And then sometimes every once in a while, a kid gets it, which is like, yeah, like four, you two handers don't sit around going, damn it, why don't I have three hands? It's so unfair. Like, if I'm my own frame of reference, which is where I'm going with all this, is what I learned by force, by the force of this injury. I would never have chosen it, but because I couldn't, I had to submit to it. And then once I submitted to it, I could start looking for where in there I had some agency, what I could work with, what was still mine to play with. And what was mine to play with was to be my own frame of reference, you know, to try to move beyond comparing this body to my old body and therefore always being in reference to what was lost and not so much into what was, what remained but this human capacity for us to be our own judge and jury, our own frame of reference is a, is a superpower, you know? And my, I, you know, it was the whole disability 
thinking movement of philosophy that had already been in my bones. And now I got to exercise it. I mean, it took a while, but I knew that this was a potential in this. And then I went back to college and I studied art. I changed my major and studied art very deliberately so that I could learn the act of seeing, the act of making perspective, the act of working with the raw material of life and making something out of it. I knew I didn't, I wasn't an artist, but I was drawing direct inspiration from what artists do. And society loves artists. So I'm like, oh, maybe they would love, maybe I could be loved for doing this, for doing the same work, taking my life as raw material and making something from it. And in fact, delighting in its originality almost, right? I mean, you wouldn't, what artist is famous for mimicking another artist? That's the kind of reasoning and history that pulled me into a different place where I started feeling, the bottom line here, Sam, is I started feeling a sense of peace around not being at peace. Like being broken, being vulnerable, that's what felt strong. That's what felt real. Not this aberrancy, not this detour, not this fall from grace, but this variation on a theme. And that... When, that got, when I got that in my bones, then I could walk down the street with pride. Then I started wearing shorts. I started showing my body off again. Again, I never did, but just like revealing myself, not trying to cover up anymore, not trying to pass. And that was deeply therapeutic. And that took me about five years to get to that place. Yeah. What you're talking about, though, is some of the, the hardest work that every human has to do, though. You know, how many yes. people look back on their younger selves as something lost, you know, that the youth is lost. A couple of years ago, I cosmetically did exogenous testosterone, mm-hmm. right? Steroids, effectively. And I still look back at those photos and go, what a specimen. <laughs> like, you know, like, I've, like, like I've lost it. But I mean, the truth of that is I never really had it. Mm-hmm. You know, my body never really had that much testosterone. I, I forced mm-hmm. that issue. Mm-hmm. But it's so easy. It's what some of the greatest spiritual teachers have taught, mm-hmm. right, is about getting to present yeah. who you are presently now, but it's so hard to actually do that in practice. It, it's hard. so easy to overstate that, like, that's yeah, be here now. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. Ram Dass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Amen. And by the way, for whatever, if, if there's any, I mean, I l- daily forget and relearn these lessons. I am in awe rhythm all the time. I still, those insecurities are alive and well, and I do compare myself and I do, my self-critic is alive and well and thriving, you know? So uh, it's more like uh, forgetting and remembering, forgetting, remembering. That's the sort of rhythm. Yeah. And you were that, that kid beforehand too, right? You were harsh on yourself and brutal. People could tell you how handsome you were. And I'm sure you couldn't, you know, I was the same way. Yeah. So what is the what is the practice of, of that you do in your life to be here and to to love your limb mm-hmm. limbs you know mm-hmm. and to to remember what is true which is that this is you mm-hmm. and that you are whole. So you know I don't have a set practice except for because I I love being in response to daily life like my goal one way of putting my if I have an ambition in life or a goal in life I would say it really is something to do with. Uh, loving reality. So so I get a little charge out of seeing the challenge of that now versus feeling the weight of my failure to do that all the time. I just sort of now see it more as a challenge when I'm in, when I'm in a good mind, when I get up. I like you had mentioned, Sam, I might start most every day with a litany of regrets and critiques. Mm-hmm. The, the millisecond I wake up, that's how I know I'm awake. 
truly. It's so ridiculous. And it's so funny. Like I, I, it's, I've gotten to the point where sometimes I just smile at myself. If there's a God, I mean, what a weird design. Like, like why would you make getting out of bed so hard? <laughs> why would you make liking yourself so hard? Anyway, so every day I start from this deficit. And so I have to kind of reconstruct every morning. I kind of find myself reconstructing a sense of self and going out in the world and trying again. You know, so I, I see reality as the teacher. Reality is my inspiration. And I guess I harbor a bias that life is much more beautiful than most of us can reckon most of the time. That, that there's a, we shrink our world for a reason. So I watch myself do that. So I guess my, I, I push back. I'm constantly trying to expand my view so that it's, it includes every part of me and everything that I'm seeing, that nothing would be left out. And that's my design prompt in a day. Because um, I'm pretty convinced that there's all sorts of things that we don't understand and don't see, and that those deserve our reverence and our curiosity. And whether they deserve our reverence and curiosity is just a way more compelling way to respond to this, all this mystery in a way more functional one. And maybe with my sister's suicide too, I, I do explicitly want, I want to be okay with just about anything and everything, but I also really don't want to destroy myself. Um, I don't want to want to destroy myself. And so I do have a goal to stay alive on some level. Do you have depression or mental illness of any kind? Oh, depression I know pretty darn well. Yeah. Yeah. Melancholy. Always, I've always, I've loved that word. I've, I was a melancholy kid. I feel access to it now. But by the way, that access to that sorrow is exactly the same thing that gives me access to the silliness and the playfulness too. They're totally related, which I've come to love. Uh, but yeah, so I've been on meds three different times in my life. I mentioned seventh grade as a real nader in my life. I was, I really wouldn't, I, mean, I felt close to suicidal in seventh grade. I don't know how serious I was about it, but yeah, I dance with the blues. Yeah, I'm currently medicated, thankfully, because uh, I do that thing where I start feeling better and then go off. <laughs> Sorry to laugh <laughs> as a doctor. It's just such an interesting <laughs> phenomenon, but yeah. yeah. Uh, a psychiatrist I saw, he said, you know, addicts and alcoholics are the only ones that fuck with their medicine without calling me. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they'll be like, yeah, two felt good, so I started taking three. He goes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, I know you guys. <laughs> um and yeah, it's just something I've I've had to learn with to live with. Mm-hmm. How old were you when your sister uh, committed suicide? Twenty nine. Twenty nine. Was there anger? Mm. Like, how did you process that in your own way? Because yeah, if you felt like a comparison, like you had everything, when mm. why are you? Mm. Well, I knew better that way. I mean, I knew we, she and I, and we as a family, by the way, these things are measured, had everything, and I knew that was a crock. I mean, it's yeah. like one of one of the things I've. I've enjoyed in my life from the, on the privilege side. It's like, I know money doesn't buy you happiness because I've had money. It's not like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like I, I should, if, if it did, I would know. You know what I mean? <laughs> I went to Princeton. It's a vaunted place. I know that getting an education from Princeton doesn't make you a superior human being. If I hadn't gone to Princeton, I would have wondered. I would have had some insecurity. What those guys have, do they get special knowledge? Are they different? Having been in that environment, I can tell you beautiful. It's amazing. It doesn't make you a better person. Like I love having these privilege points so that I can see these little mountaintops and go, eh, 
you know, I know I don't have to, I don't have to envy them. So Lisa, I mean, so was I angry? Um, no. How'd you process that at that, mm. that time in your life? Well, I remember very clearly, I had just had revision. I was taking a semester off. I was senior year of med school. And I was taking a semester off to have some revision surgery done on my legs. And I was in my, at this time, my family was living in Milwaukee. My parents were, my sister was in New York. And I was on my parents' couch in Milwaukee recovering from the surgery when Lisa died. Scratch that. I was actually in Sacramento. My dad, where the surgeon was, there was this specialized surgery that I had. I think this guy was in Sacramento. My dad and I, it wasn't healing. And my dad flew and I flew out to Sacramento to see the surgeon. And we were in the rental car going from the airport to the doctor's office when my mom called my dad and we were driving. And my buddy, Justin Burke, one of my bestest friends was with us. And I was in the back seat and my dad picked up the phone in this kind of playful way when my mom calls. And within a, a couple seconds of silence, and then all of a sudden, this explosive weeping. My dad just, I mean, it was, I'd not, I've never heard a sound like this out of him. And I remember very clearly this moment, because without any time to think about it, I knew that Lisa had died, and I knew that Lisa had killed herself. Instantly. I mean, that's just what came to mind, right? Yeah. It wasn't, there was, my point was, it was not sitting back and kind of weighing what could have been something in my gut said, this is what happened, which is weird because my sister and I had both, when we were in and out of relations, closeness together over the years, when we were close, we would, you know, we both knew that we both had our gripes about life and we both were no strangers to darkness. And my sister had had a very dear friend who killed herself when she was a college freshman and after Allison's death, Lisa and I had promised each other we wouldn't do that because of the mess it leaves for loved ones. Mm. I was tempted to be angry at her because we had that promise, but I really wasn't because I knew that I, I knew that was a bullshit promise. Actually, come to think of it, you know, as I as I as I weighed it. So back to your question, Sam. I know I kind of tried to be angry, but you know, I never really was angry at her. I was angry at her when she was alive. I was angry for the way she treated my parents and never uh, apologized. That angered me. And there was, she angered me the way she could be cruel. But I also knew my sister, I'm pretty sure that she saw herself removing herself from the planet as a mercy, that she thought she was doing the world a mercy. Yeah. And so her suicide in a way was not one of the cruel things she's done. She was very capable of cruelty. And if she wanted to make my mom and dad and me feel horrible about her death, she would have, she would have delighted in doing it. But she didn't. There was no note blaming us. She, she was a master manipulator and could be very cruel. And this was not one of her cruel acts. Hmm. Where were you in the med school process? Because there's a pivot where you go, I'm disabled. I have a unique skill set to help disabled people. Mm -hmm this is my life's work. And then mm -hmm. you transition into palliative, pal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's such a clunky word. I always fuck it up. Palliative <laughs> yeah. care. Yeah. You got it. Which is similar to hospice. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to educate us a little bit, mm -hmm. but when, when did you make that switch? Were they at all related? Is death at all related to your switch? So it's interesting. I mean, temporally. Yes. Yeah. So, so this was, so I was senior year med school, took that semester off late in med school. In other words, and uh, when Lisa died, and I was already becoming disillusioned with medicine, um, as anyone does in the training. There's yeah, most people go into medicine and healthcare with pretty from a pretty idealized plan, point of view. I mean, it's service, helping fellow humans, and I mean, most 
people go into medicine with very big hearts. Um, and then there's reconciling with the realities of practice, practicing medicine, which can be just brutal. And so I was in the middle of that disillusionment. I was sort of feeling kind of like, maybe I should get out of this. Um, and then Lisa died and I was like, Jesus, I can't even help my own sister. What am I think? You know, like I didn't help my confidence to be a, a, mm. a any a healing influence. So I was going to drop out. I was going to finish med school. I just had one more semester to do, but then I was going to dump it. And, um, but then my Dean talked me into doing, a one postdoc year, the first year residency, because then, then at least you can get your license as a general practitioner. It's easier to jump back in if you want to, blah, blah, blah. So it just kept options open. So I said, okay. I went back to San Francisco, UCSF, finished med school, and then decided to do this one year of residency in Milwaukee back with my family, back with my parents. Because as I told you, I went to boarding school. I left home when I was 15. So go move in with mom and dad for the year, recongeal the family now that Lisa was gone, just do this year, mostly just to be with mom and dad and be done with medicine. But during that year, I did an elective in palliative care and got instantly turned on to it immediately. But it really weirdly has never felt, it has not had as, and I've done hospice work and a lot of end of life stuff, but it has never, weirdly has never felt related to my experience with my sister and her suicide with very few exceptions. I mean, when it comes up around aid and dying and people's wish to hasten their own death and when is death the cure versus when is death the scourge? When is death the therapeutic thing? That's often, that's a big question. And it often enough is. So I think of Lisa and those, and around those sort of, around the edges of that issue. But weirdly, Lisa's death has not felt any part of my work. Disability has, dealing with things that you can't change transformation by you know dropping the sense of control and finding workarounds and adapting and seeing that, that that's where my that's the that's the thing that I have found most relevant in my job yeah I, I would say dealing with things you can't change is a human condition yeah right? where there's a whole industry right the self-help industry is generally selling people answers to their humanity that they will never mm. erase I heard you mention the I forget where it was, but I heard you mention people's desire to get away from their neuroses. Mm -hmm. I don't think many people find that. You know, I think that more people probably find how to be that mm -hmm. gracefully yeah. than find out how to erase that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, there's something funny. I've been weighing whether to say or not. I, I don't know if it's perverse. Yeah, well, uh, all all is welcome. Okay. I've, as somebody who, like, I've just taken a lot of shit, you know, I, like, there's some things that I can't say on air because I don't want my son mm -hmm. to ever hear, but I had a kid at 19. Mm -hmm. I was a meth head. I'm a college dropout. Like, I feel so broken, you know, in so many ways. And there's, I've come to fetishize scars in a, in a way mm -hmm. because they're a representation of something that happened and something that healed. and. Yeah, there's this weird envy that came up when I started diving into your work mm. because like I feel so broken and there's no signs of it. I feel like, why are you expecting me to function? Mm -hmm. Like I'm not whole. And mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm saying that. I just, I guess I just decided to, mm. to say it. Well, I'm glad you did. I think a lot of people don't say that out loud, but think that. I know I would have. 
And part of the upshot of the, my injuries was, in some way, I looked like I, fi- I finally looked like I felt. Yeah, it's problematic. They give you a bunch of pity and a bunch of junk too, but at least they gave me some space. And they gave me, in this case, what for me, the way I'm wired, a gift of low expectations. Like I think you were saying earlier, I don't do well with pressure. If I'm expected to go become a doctor, I'll fail. If being a doctor would be a shocking thing to do as a disabled person, then I'll succeed. Like if it's a surprise and I'm not expected to do it, then I'm good. So in some ways, the, the low expectations that come with, around disability serve me. You know, just the way I am characterologically. And I can tell you, Sam, I have come to, I mean, there's so much to say and there's so many nuances and details, but I am aware that um, I'm grateful that I can't pass, that I, that my scars show. It's forced me to deal with them, for one, and it's forced the world to deal with me just because it's just obvious. And I, at times that's been a burden and I would have loved to have hidden, but I am very aware of the huge upshot of that. And because I know what it feels like for the world to look at you one way and you feel such a different way inside. And I still have that, but that, the Delta, that gap is a little, a little more closed because the way my body looks, because I'm obviously broken and my heart for folks who have hidden disabilities, mental illness, you know, however, whatever we want to, whatever the variation on the theme, I do believe that's a harder road. Mm. And, uh, so I hear you, pal. What made you want to spend your life dealing with death? The impulse really is to deal with reality and, death happens to be this big piece of reality that everyone loves to ignore. And so it's kind of juicy and interesting and it's of our time with our aging population. And we're at a time in our sort of modern history where it's so alienated and we're so divorced from our nature. We're so that, that there's a, there's a pressing sort of public ethical uh, reason to turn attention to our mortality now so those are the reasons I'm interested in it. It's, but it's all on behalf of reality. If, if there were some other cordoned off piece of reality, there are, of course, but if that we had more access that I had access to as a physician, uh, I might have chosen to do different work. I like the corners of reality that stay darker than they need to be. The work would be making them less hard, less horrifying, less afraid, more accessible. I love that death my favorite thing about it is that it affects everybody. And I, it's so a great equalizer. It is. And I, that, for all the differences you or I may feel from the world around us and these contrasts that we're sort of hyper aware of, it's beautiful to feel a common ground where it's truly common, where I, where I know I actually have it in common with you, with, with Maisie, with you know, every, anything and everything who's ever lived across any culture, rich, poor, black, white, that is stunning to me that makes sort of the subject the the most relevant least esoteric subject ever yeah it's something that we've run away from yeah though and yeah. you which know makes like, it more interesting too. which makes it more mm-hmm. interesting like i don't want to think about that my son's gonna die i don't want to think about that my mom's gonna die my dad died a very bad death mm. uh this year mm. yeah he clung on to life mm. He didn't allow anyone near except for his wife, who I don't think wanted to share the caretaking 
I think that became her identity. So I'm, I'm the caretaker. And she did. Mm. She did take care of him. Uh, but he didn't speak to two of his kids, you know, because um, mm. he had he had spent their trust, mm. you know, that the, <laughs> that his dad had left for them. Uh-huh. I didn't know about it, luckily. So for me, I didn't lose anything, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It was like a thing I had to, f- like afterwards, it was like, oh, hey, your granddad left you a bunch of money. But <laughs> your dad spent it. So for me, it was like, well, easy come, easy go. It really devastated the older siblings because they were told the story. And um, my mom is the type of person that gets close to death. So she could be kind of okay friends with someone. And the second they start dying, she gets, she goes in and mm-hmm. leans in. And it was, it really in some way desensitized me as a kid. Mm. Uh, like, I'm not sure a young kid is supposed to have that many people die because mm. like a lot of people would come in dying there was mm. this little baby bryce that had a terminal thing i forget what it was mm. and my mom made us interact you know mm. and i was i was that kid mm-hmm. so that was strange to meet this child and then for the child to die mm. and it's just easy for us to avoid we've invented oh, i don't want to say we've invented geez that's offensive mm-hmm. <laughs> we've there are people who have an afterlife you know who believe in an afterlife (laughs) which is a a way i think in in a way to avoid what you are leaving behind here Mm. you know how many people believe in heaven and yet still make no preparations for their Mm. kids or for their loved ones or to heal the wounds or make Mm -hmm. reparations or make sense you know it's one of the things about being the creatures of narrative and the creatures of meaning is that we have to go find it again when it's lost and so you just take an interesting turn right you not only do you want to deal with palliative care but you go to the zen hospice project i'm assuming you didn't get rich there (laughs) (laughs) you're right pal yeah Yeah. (laughs) that was something i talked to frank about off air you know i said you're doing such good work do you do you find it hard to make money doing this work he goes this is this has been my whole life's work you know <laughs> yeah you don't want to charge for these things yeah what are your big takeaways from your time you must have facilitated and helped with hundreds or thousands of people passing yeah what are your big takeaways from it well from the zen hospice experience or just from the of hospice work in general i guess, we can just say hospice in general and, yeah yeah well uh, that A, I think the big one is, and as you point out, it's this sort of oddly, maybe even dumbly tri- tricky now, but one is I am convinced that we die. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I actually believe it. And I'm not so swayed by the billboards promising me this or that. And I, I would say that with a little tongue in cheek, um, but not, I mean, but I actually think that's an important statement. Um so that's a big one, um, and that it's not necessarily always the enemy. Well, that it's not the enemy, I guess. We can have any relationship to we want with it we want. We can be angry at it. We can fight it. We can love it. We can seek it. We can run from it. You know, hey, whatever. I'm not here to judge however we respond to it, but let's just please respond to it. I've become to feel in my bones how death is part of life versus its antithesis, which I think is the the dominant narrative in society that somehow death is opposed to life. I do not agree with that. 
I've come to, since, since death is here, I like to, if I can't change something, if I can't, yeah, if I can't change something, I, my, my second, my, my next, next up is, is to love it. You know, so if death, death ain't going anywhere. And I'm not, I'm not, again, I don't think I would wish it away anyway, but it ain't going anywhere. So therefore let's work with it. Let's even love it. Let's just see what it does for us. Let's see what we can do with it. And eventually, it, you know, this isn't earth shattering. These aren't earth shattering takeaways, but the, the idea that if you find anything precious, the force that makes it precious is that someday it goes away, that you cannot take it for granted. So you start appreciating death's role in making life precious, lending urgency to the decisions we make, lending importance to the decisions we make. Why is it important that you and I are spending time together if we had unlimited time? Oh, whatever, sure, Sam, we'll do this. We'll do, I mean, there would be no power to what you and I are doing right now. And so you start seeing the role of the end in illuminating the rest of it, you know? You start seeing, I saw this with my friend's response to my own injuries. I knew they were great guys. I love lovely. They were great friends, but I didn't realize how amazing they were until I was suffering and they had a reason to show all their compassion and show all their beauty. You know, like these, these couplets, they're all over the place and death's the, the death is this big, it's the thing that sets the context for our life. So I have come to appreciate these are just sort of a quick list of some of the ways death is a, a useful force. So those things, I, in answer to your question, those are those realizations are daily palpable, and therefore I'm a little more primed to appreciate what I do have when it, while I have it, and that's a really I love that it's side effect. I'm more primed to appreciate something after right after I've lost it, <laughs> and yeah, uh, always yeah, you know I mean I don't beat myself up over that anymore. I think these are normal things, but I do push back and I want to love things now, appreciate them while I have them. So death does all those things for me. I've also come to see that it's not so terrifying, or at least the dying process doesn't have to be so terrifying. Hospice can do such beautiful work with people. Not all pain can be taken away and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that, I don't think anyway. But I will say that by being around people who are going before me, most of the time by people, by the time the person's actually doing the dying, they're usually ready to go one way or another, either resigned to the fact or, or have made meaning with the fact. I think that death is harder for people who are living. <laughs> yeah. And that's a really important point. There does, in a lot of cases, I mean, not my dad's case, but in a lot of cases, there does seem to be some sort of physiological shift where the brain starts pumping in the right hormones or something yeah. and people start to... But that's not always the case. Nope. Before my dad, I saw somebody die a really ugly death. Mm. He could vocalize all the things mm. that were not right about his death and what were not right about his life in, in the way that my father couldn't. So it was much more traumatic. Mm. Frank hated this question when I asked him. <laughs> <laughs> but he's too Buddhist for his own good. Uh, <laughs> oh God, I can't wait. Yeah. It's a great one. But... He didn't even like the idea of a good death yeah. because he's kind of like, well, that's a lot of pressure. That's yeah. what he said. That's a lot of pressure to put on somebody yeah, dying. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But what are the things you notice about the people who seem to die the most gracefully? Mm. 
that they did with their lives or that they did with their time or with their families or mm-hmm. what do you what stuck out as kind of like post-it notes in the book of life mm-hmm. of like refer to this remember this mm-hmm. i think a couple of thoughts come to mind and i, I share frank's suspicion of, of of good deaths i see that in part the sort of the, the, the problems of language in general and part for our desire to judge and put adjectives in part because i do believe it's a real pressure one of the things that's problem, you know, Shoshana wrote this book. We're trying to sort of say there's a way to die a little, like, you know, with a little less pain, a little bit more meaning. But we're very leery of this idea that we're setting up a way to die and therefore you're going to feel like a failure if you don't do X, Y, and Z. And you don't mm-hmm. get to this good death. And Jesus, that's ex- taking away death's chief charm, which is there's no failing it. You can't fuck it up. <laughs> you're going to die. You will get through death. You know, you will get through your dying. You will succeed at dying. And I do not want to take away that singular charm. So anyway, I'm with Frank on all those points. But back to your question, things that stick out for for me are that when people are just rawly honest, and so sometimes an honest person is railing at their death or is angry or whatever else, but that's just the, that's where they're at and that's fine. So I'm not after peace per se, or some sort of quiet, you know, doesn't no, it's more self-referential. Like where do you feel right and where do you feel honest? And Frank has a wonderful phrase of in his five invitations, uh, one of which I think is he says, I welcome everything welcome everything, push away nothing. I love that one. I think I, I ascribe to that myself. I, I think and so when I see someone doing that with their death, you know, they're in their own filth. They may stink. They may, you know, whatever it is. And they're just being there while they can be there. You know, if they smell, sorry, if they, you know, whatever it is, whatever they are, they're okay with that. That's a beautiful thing to behold. And the foil of the sort of the ugliness of a body decaying is an amazing foil for someone being demanding to be right with themselves despite that's a beautiful post-it note. And then the second one would be the folks who have found a way in life to see life beyond themselves and therefore to contextualize themselves and their ego. And yes, they're, this is the end of life for them. Yes, they are dying, but life will go on. And someone who's reconciled that to those two things and aren't in some way intimidated or actually offended that life's going to go on without them. That's very beautiful to behold. And I think that's where I think all of us could, I mean, I think in both points, there's a, those are two big lessons for us in any point in our lives to see the see, see life beyond ourselves, in ourselves and beyond ourselves and to find a way to be okay with whatever the hell is real. I have a two-part question, which I, I worry will have some redundancy. So I'm just going to ask them both at mm-hmm. the same time. What is most important for you to do on kind of a micro basis what do you want to spend your daily time mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. you know day to day i guess I, I say that because there's so many people that have big goals mm-hmm. that are far out but since you're so well aware of your own mor- mortality mm-hmm. you know that today could be it and yeah. so what do you spend your micro time doing your day to day that mm-hmm. you you consider important to remember throughout the day mm-hmm. and then after that what do you want to do with your time here the little bit of time that you have here until you die. Mm. Well, one thing that death does really beautifully is like the profound and mundane stuff go right next to each other. It's, it's, it's this very sweet, everything gets revealed as profound. 
you know, and it's, and it can feel and boring is profound. I mean, everything's all in this, it's the same pile. And so in sort of day-to-day life micro, like where I, I mean, I find probably my greatest sort of connection, sense of connectivity to the world, which I think is a very basic and important part of being a, a well human being is feeling connected to something. And for me, the most direct is being connected to the animals I live with, two cats and a dog. That is my daily, those guys teach me a bunch of things. They remind me I'm alive. They have immediate needs. They don't sit around, you know, wasting much time on thinking about the life they don't have. You know, they, they're not embarrassed by themselves. You know, I draw great inspiration from them. And I draw, draw great meaning from the fact that we are a family and they need me and I need them. So there's, a, I mean, that's a big part of my daily life. And I feel not so dissimilar about my friends and my patients. So that's my sort of daily life. It's kind of that simple. I do like throwing myself in different situations because I now take pride in being this adaptive thing. So I th- it's fun to be plopped down in different circumstances and see how I do, see how I go. But I see daily life is full of improvisation and creativity just getting through the day. And when I get in bed at night, usually I feel pretty proud to have made it through another day. I'm not proud, maybe even just surprised because it's friggin' hard. But yeah, it's too Sam. Like, what do I want to sort of almost like a legacy? Like, what do I want to get done before I go? Is that, did I hear your question right? Yeah. What do you want to do with your life here? Mm-hmm. I guess I want to, the thing I want to live out loud is the thing we're talking about. I want to find my way to loving reality. I want to find my way to being honest with myself. I want to work on the act of communicating what I actually think and feel. Writing a book was a great exercise. It's very hard to know. It's very hard to say what you mean. You know, mm-hmm. I think you and I probably mean well on all sorts of fronts, but I, I don't know. It doesn't always come out that way. I don't always say what I mean. I would love to say what I mean, and I'll hap- happily take the consequences. I get bummed out where I can't com- express or communicate to friends, family, loved ones, whatever, animals, what I actually mean. And I feel in daily life that most of us are engaged in zillions of misunderstandings, most of them not of great consequence, but that's the way I might make sense of human interactions. And I love that because I, I much rather yield to a misunderstanding than, Oh, that guy's a jerk or whatever else. So I, I feel like back to sort of my aspirations for life. Like if I could get to a point where I'm truly honest and I'm able to articulate that honesty or reveal that honesty, where my innards and outer parts really do line up and where my intentions and actions line up, um, that would be amazing. If I could actually achieve that, that would be amazing. More concretely, I fantasize about building a home from scratch. That's mm. a great desire of mine. I need to get outside more. I love my land in southern Utah. I need to spend more. I want to spend more and more time there. And I want to participate in this this reawakening of uh, of our relationship to reality, whether it's our reality around climate and our relationship to the planet, the reality of our mortality, our interdependence. However, whichever pick your piece of reality that's of most interest to you, I want to participate in both the waking up as well as the comforting. I love that. This is how I like to end the program. And I'm not going to pick the time. You have to pick the time, but I'd love to know when. Mm. If I could hand you a phone and on the other end of the line was you, 
at whatever moment of your life you think would be most important. Mm -hmm. And you could send a message to that young man or that boy mm -hmm. or whatever moment you'd like to reach yourself. Mm. What would you want to tell that young man to kind of help guide him into the, the man that you become? Hmm. I think it's as simple as I love you. I mean, it's another way of saying, oh, another way of putting everything I was just talking about. I really want to love myself and see myself as part of something much larger. I want to love it all. That will help quiet that inner critic or at least point him to something more constructive. And I do think that that message just covers about every base imaginable. I want to be loved, but I also want to feel lovable. And I want to love things. I think one of the reasons I'm with animals is they're safe to love. They don't bite you in the ass. But anyway, back to your question. I think if this, this person in the future could look back at the, my person in the past and just give him this big old smile, put his hands on his face. I said hands, interestingly, put hands on his <laughs> face. <laughs> and just look at him with this knowing smile and kind of giggle at him and just say, I love you. You little turkey. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sam. We're done. <laughs> All right, buddy boy. That's it for today's episode. Don't forget, before you leave, this is an audience-funded program. Go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash howtohuman. Listen to the episodes early. Ask a question. Become a part of the community. I need you guys. It's lonely here. I'd love your feedback on episodes before they come out. But also, you can leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget, if you'd like to hear from more of the guests or like to see what they're up to, I include all their social media and website links in the show notes, which is just the episode description. Thanks for tuning in to the How To Human podcast. Tell your friends.